baptism, baby dedication, time to worship. It's, it's an awesome, awesome day. Take your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. I'm doing this series called Who Needs It, as you can see from the uh, slide behind me. And what's critical about this as I saw it was this. There's so many topics that we at times think about, but I wonder if really in our hearts we have grasped that this is more than just a thought it's more than a truth. It's more than an intellectual exercise that it's something that we need. I mean, need at the basic level. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about doctrine, uh, who needs the truth of God, which I believe we all do. Doctrine has fallen on hard times uh, as far as the word is concerned because a lot of people think, oh, I just got to love God and love people. That's all there is. And uh, the truth is you don't know the God you love apart from doctrine. You don't know apart who God is apart from his word. We need to study God's word. We need to know who it is that we're worshiping, who it is that we love. And so we, we, we looked at the topic of doctrine. And then for us as a church, we're a church that fully embraces the word of God, the doctrine of God, the truth of God, the, the, the way God speaks. And we also fully embrace the spirit of God. Uh, Jesus said to the woman at the well, uh, my father is looking for those who will worship in spirit, spirit and in truth, spirit and truth. And we fully embrace both of those. The person of the Holy Spirit, 100% of the Spirit of God, 100% of the Word of God. That's the church that we are. So we looked at doctrine as the Word of God. And then last week we looked at prophecy as one of the, the ways the Spirit of God moves in people and in the church, we still believe that all the gifts of the Spirit are available today. As a church, that is our uh, position. We're continuationist in our, our belief. And so one of those is prophecy. And we looked at how that might operate within a, a corporate setting, basically saying, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we need it. We need prophecy. We need doctrine. We need prophecy. Today, I want to look at the, the topic of community. Last two years have been tough on community. I read an article in the Wall Street Journal of all places, um, you know, because I read that every day. Um, and I'm just joking. I don't even think I might, but I really don't. But uh, it was an article on churches and how church attendance has dropped um, between 30 and 50 percent since the pandemic hit. And basically, the article was talking about. Um, the way forward for churches, basically saying, will church life ever return to pre-pandemic numbers? Now, again, this is the Wall Street Journal, so your guess would be, no, that's right. <laughs> your guess would be right. Your guess would be, their opinion is that, no, it won't return to pre-pandemic numbers, and they could be correct. The church was already declining by about 3% annually before the pandemic hit, and since then, uh, it just accelerated that. And you know, praise God, we're uh, as a church, fullness is doing great. But it's not just about us; it's about us. It's about the community of faith. But at the same time, it is about the community of faith. Who needs it? Who needs community? Who needs people? We're becoming more and more isolated in our structure, in our beliefs. I mean, really, you can live life 
survive and almost never leave your home. I mean, really, it's just getting more and more where you don't have to, everything you need can be brought to you. Uh, everything you want to view can be seen through some sort of device. Um, you can exercise in your home. You can do everything in your home and probably very seldom leave. But I will tell you this straight out, and I believe this with all my heart, that one of the things you need to survive is actually other people. You actually need community and others in order to survive. Now, you can survive, but you're not going to thrive. You're not going to be who God calls you to be. And can I say this too? I, I, I'm thinking about writing a book on a, I'm thinking about a hundred different books that I'm going to write. But one of them is um, uh, how, how to be an introvert in an extroverted job. Like, um, I, I, I would much, I know you, some of you still don't believe me that inherently I'm more introverted uh, over 30 years, I've gotten to the point where I can almost tolerate people. But, um, you know, it's just an unusual job for a pastor, right? For a guy who would much rather stay at home and read and uh, just be by myself. I need long hours to recoup from crowds still. Uh, it's just the way God has, God has made me. I, I need like two or three friends in my life to be, and I could be happy with that. But that's not what God has called me to be. God has made me a way, but he's also called me to be this. And so I, I love everyone here. I, I love seeing everyone here. I love, I love the community of faith that is here. And that is only by the grace of God. It's not my natural bent is what I'm saying. Some of you are like, I don't even know I'm part of this church. And this pastor doesn't even like people. No, I, I'm saying that to, to be mocking, but I, I, I like you. Uh, so turn to Philippians 1. I'm going to read a passage of Paul talking about the community of faith. Now, background real quick before I read it. Remember, Paul is in chains in Rome. He is, he, he is imprisoned. He's literally chained to a soldier somewhere in Rome. And he's writing back to the church in Philippi. He's writing to them as a church he loves. And I think you'll see that. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Then I'm going to uh, give a little longer intro than I already have. And then we're going to look at, and I'm going to have to move quicker this morning. I'm going to look at six points about relationship that are critical. But I promise you, I'll move through them quickly. But look at Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all, all, I'm sorry, you're not up there yet. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's intro. This is kind of his two-letter, dear church. It's just a little longer, but it's his opening salutation. Now look at what he says. I thank my God every time I remember you, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray. How many times is he going to say always? A bunch, always. He's going to keep saying it. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, 
all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Relationship, community, it just oozes out of this passage. I mean, you'd have to be really have some sort of limited vision not to get the not to get that Paul is emphasizing what does it mean to be a part of a community of faith this is an uh, an old thought that really we are stronger in community than we are apart because as iron sharpens iron how does iron sharpen iron I mean, this is a whole different sermon, but iron sharpens iron by the contact between the two, the friction between the two, the sparks between the two. That's what sharpens relationships. And in doing so, sometimes we rub up against each other and things aren't always beautiful and peaceful and joyful. And we in our society have come to this belief that every relationship in our life must be just smooth, awesome, never having any problems, never having any difficulties. And if it does, then I'm out of there. Because relationships, like everything in our society, have become disposable. We just get rid of it. If we're not happy with it, we're out of it. And that can go from anything from marriage to best friends to friends of a lifetime to church relationships. If things don't go exactly like I want them to, I'm, gonna, I'm gone. Because, of course, here am I, and here's the universe. Right? This is the view that we have of our existence. I am at the center of all that is good and all that is right and all that is in the universe. We, we've bought into this. We've bought into this, I'm the center of the universe stuff. And as a result, anything that disrupts my universal view of me at the center is out of here. I'm disposing of it. That is not the biblical picture of iron sharpening iron. It is not the picture of what Jesus Christ gives for the church. I mean, Jesus says in his prayer, when he's praying for his disciples, he says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Hey, by the way, in case you wonder, that's you. He's praying for you. Jesus prayed for you 2,000 years ago. We didn't believe directly from their, exact, their message at the time, but we we're descendants of that. And as a result, Jesus is praying for us. What is he praying? That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And by the way, we understand the mystery of the Trinity. No. Not understand, but we understand that there is a mystery that is the Trinity, that the Father is in Jesus and he and the Father are one, and he's praying for that exact same unity for us. A unity, a relationship that cannot be broken. And he goes on and says, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them you and me, so that they may be brought to complete 
unity. Complete, not incomplete, complete. Complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. We so underestimate the power of relationships in unity and completion in the sharing of the gospel to the world. Could it be that the world is not coming to Jesus because we are not walking in unity with one another? I think the answer is obviously yes. That's hindering the gospel. It's not projecting the gospel. There is a beauty in the body of Christ and in Christians. I, I, I went and saw this movie this past week. Um, it's called The Reluctant Witness on the Life of C.S. Lewis. Um, uh, Cindy recommended it. Actually, she's the one who told Kathy, who drugged me to the movies, because I'm not going out by myself, you know. And so, went to the movies, saw The Reluctant Witness. And again, I was just so reminded, the whole movie was in the words of C.S. Lewis himself, and I was so reminded of the fact that he came to the faith as a result of the lives of Christians around him. He was drawn to the beauty of the faith as a result of the lives of other, other Christians. And I read about another example this week of someone who, who that exact same thing. It wasn't really some things, but it was really some people who showed them what does it mean to actually be a Christian. There are others that we know throughout history who have been driven away from the Christian faith as a result of observing Christians. Gandhi said that. He said, I would have become a Christian a long time ago except for the Christians that I knew. It's a shame, but true. We instead need to be drawn and drawing others to the faith because Jesus says this is his plan. This is his plan for our gospel proclamation is that I can, through me, a bunch of different people can be made one. A bunch of people who probably shouldn't even get along. A bunch of people who come from such different backgrounds, but that unity will draw them. And Paul prays for this church in Philippians, saying, whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. All of you. Wherever he is, he's saying, together, we're still together. We're sharing in God's grace. Now, we know that the Bible gives us a bunch of different metaphors or pictures of what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a family or a kingdom. We're a kingdom of priests, a living building, a house or a temple. We are a nation. We are a body. We, these are all pictures because who we are so transcends all other forms of gatherings of humanity that Paul is trying, and the New Testament is trying to say, this is, there's so many different pictures of what it means to be together and to be in faith. Because there's an aspect, there's an aspect of Christianity in which some people believe it's just me and God. You know, all Christianity, this is just between me and my creator. This is just between me and God. All that matters is me and him. And if I would contend that, that your relationship with God is beyond critical. But I would also contend that the New Testament paints no such picture of just you and God. 
that the New Testament paints the picture of you, God, and us. And as Gordon Fee says in his commentary, God is not looking for a person after his name. God is looking for a people after his name. A holy nation, a people, us in this together. And so in many senses, part of our goal here is to be in community with one another. Having community with one another, with God at the center is one of our goals as church. Now, please understand, it's not the only... Obviously, the goal is to proclaim to the world that Jesus Christ is the one who rules their life and forgives their sins. The church is held up to the light of God's glory, and we, we shine his multifaceted glory to the world around us. But we do that in community. So therefore, community with God is the center. At the center is our goal. But relationships with God in the center is the vehicle through which the goal is achieved. So do you understand? What I'm saying is the goal is community, the church, held up to the light of the glory of God. But there is no community apart from relationships. With God at the center, we need to have relationships with one another. Now, here today at Fullness, we've got a couple of hundred people present in this building. Not a big church. We've never been a really large church. But I want to tell you, you can come to a church of 200 every single Sunday for every week of your life. Think you're in community, but I want to say this. You're not in community if you're not in relationship with those around you. And you, to be in relationship, you can't even come into a church that has a couple of hundred people sit in the same spot, worship with the same songs, hear the same sermon, then go your way and never have relationship with people in order for that to develop. Because as iron sharpens iron, they've got to, they've got to have a connection. There's got to be a point of connection for them. That's why we have small groups. That's why we have many different settings for you to connect with people in relationship in our church. And to do that, what I think Paul is saying is we all have to step outside of ourselves for this to occur, for us to be in relationship. Because community is so important. Tim Bascom, in, in a book that uh, he, he wrote called The Comfort Trap, said this, community can rescue us from ourselves and help us to become ourselves. In the end, the size and strength of a community depends on the willingness of its members to give themselves in relationship. Now, again, please understand the difference. Community is the bigger, relationship is the individual. The strength of the community relies on the strength of the relationships with God at the center of all of it. He goes on and says, you can't stay apart you can't stay part of a community and make all your decisions based on purely personal goals. Now, why do I say this? And I'm going to emphasize this a lot today. Because we are of the mentality that we go to church for what I can get out of it. I choose the church or I choose many things in life because here am I and here's the universe. I choose a church based on what I get out of it. What do we often hear about church? 
you know, I had to change churches. I, were, I really wasn't getting that much out of it anymore. <clears throat> I, I've heard it way too much. I try not to get fired up about it. I've, I used to have an anger problem, and I'm almost over it. Um, but there are certain things <laughs> that uh, get me fired up again. And one of them is that kind of statement. I, I, I'll go to church, but... I'm not getting much out of it. You know, it, I, I just don't see that again in the picture of the New Testament. Church isn't what you get to get out of it. Church is about what you get to pour into it. And I can promise you this. The more you pour into it, the more you'll get out of it. It, it's, it goes that way. I, I, every time I do premarital counseling, anybody in this room who's been in premarital counseling with me and Kathy, you, you, you know that I will say at some point, marriage is not a 50-50 proposition. It's not me bringing 50 and her bringing 50. Marriage is 100-100. It's me giving 100% and her giving 100%. And one of the phrases I use with premarital counseling couples is this. Live to outgive your spouse. Live to outgive your spouse. Why? Because many times, even in marriage, we go into it thinking, what can I get out of it? This is going to make me complete. This is going to make me happy. This is going to make me content. Hey, can I get a amen that none of those things will happen? If all of your, they can happen, but none of them will happen if all you're looking to do is get out of the relationship. But it can happen if you give yourself away to that relationship. This past week, um, Kathy and I, are, we live in an older home and we're trying to do some things. We had to, some hardwood floors refinished. And so, you know, if you get a hardwoods refinished, you know what you got to do next, right? You got to paint. Yeah, you got to paint the wall. So I thought I was signing up to throw my money into a pot to get the hardwoods finished. The next thing I know, I swear to you, this is true. The next thing I know, we're reorganizing closets. We're throwing stuff away. I'm hauling furniture away. I'm shopping for more furniture. I'm painting the entire rooms. I'm like, you know what? I know this. I know this party. This will not end until the whole house is redone. And so I claimed kind of a barrier at these two doors. I said, I said, these two rooms and none other. You shall not pass, kind of thing. I'm not going, I'm not doing the entire house. But you know what? I I when I was down on my knees painting those baseboards, I was absolutely miserable. I'm getting older, and it, my back hurts, and my knees hurt, and, you know, I was getting dizzy from the paint and looking down at the whole time. And I thought, only for her. I mean, really, that's how the, only for her am I doing this. Why? Because I love her. And I know that she's now much happier and if she's happier, we're all happier, right? <laughs> so, relationships. But it's what I get to pour into it, not what I get to take out of it. Here's my six points. Hang with me. I'm moving fast from this point forward. Yeah, right. You've been here before, right? <laughs> Number one, relationships begin with gratitude. Oh, my word. I'm going to preach a whole sermon on gratitude next week, so I'll try not to preach it today. But Paul starts, all of this is from Philippians 1. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. How many relationships in your life do you honestly say, every time I think about them, I give thanks? 
Why? Because most of the time, come on, be honest, your phone rings, the name pops up, and you go, oh, man. Do I answer? Do I not? Do I put them over on voicemail? What do I do? Am I the only one who... Right, but the first thought sometimes is not gratitude. What does that mean? It means I've got more flesh to work out in me than I ever thought. I've got more sin in my life than I, I thought I did. I thought I was doing better than I am. But relationships will bring it out in you. Paul is saying, you need to thank God for the relationships you have. You're, you're lucky to have any friends, some of you. <laughs> so you should be grateful for them, Right? Thank God that you're in relationship with some people around you. But it begins with gratitude. And we, again, I'm going to talk about this next week, so I don't want to, to, to dwell on it too long. But gratitude, it feeds the soul. Ingratitude feeds itself. If you, an ingrate is one of life's ugliest creatures, in my opinion. It's accurate, though, don't you think? I mean, really, people who are ungrateful, you just, they are hard to be around. All they do is complain about everything. Nothing is good. They're not thankful for anything. Listen, if you're going to have valuable relationships in your life, then you need to thank the Lord honest. Thank, I thank my God every time I think about fullness. I really do. I, I thank God for this place and this people. It's unbelievable what God has done in this place. In spite of the pastoral leadership of this place, we still have people coming to church and loving Jesus. And it's awesome. It is, it is incredible, and it begins with a position of gratitude. Now, some of you may say, well, it, it should begin in love. I think love is more a product of all of these points than it is love comes out of it all. But gratitude... Being thankful, we'll talk about this more again, as I said next week, get, get ready. But Albert Schweitzer said this, at times our own light goes out and is rekindled by a spark from another person. Each of us has cause to think with deep gratitude of those who have lighted the flame within us. Be grateful for those who have lit that flame within you over, over the years. It begins with gratitude. The second is this, relationships... Relationships deeper through intimacy. They deepen through intimacy. Here's what Paul says, and there are several points on this. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Now you may say, what has that got to do with intimacy? My contention is this. When you pray for somebody else, you deepened a bond of intimacy with them. It is hard to think badly of a person you're praying for. I mean, really, why did Jesus pray for those who hate you? Why? Because praying for those who hate you will give you something for them. It'll give you a position of grace in their lives. Prayer is an act of intimacy. As a matter of fact, I, again, going back to premarital couples, I'll tell a lot of premarital couples, look, I think you guys are praying together too much. Uh, and you're like, what? Prayer is an intimate act. Prayer, I know a lot of couples, because I went to a Baptist college and a Baptist seminary, who started off praying together and ended up having sex together before they got married. Why? Because prayer is such an intimate act. 
Um, I, I recommend couples when they pray together, if they're a, a single, not married yet, that pray with other people around. It's, it's better because it really is an intimate act. Some of you are like, this is strange, but I, I, I'm just, I'm giving you an experience from life of viewing other, others and, and all my premarital um, counseling that I've done. But what I'm saying is this. Paul is saying this act of prayer is an act of intimacy with you. And in all my prayers for all of you. He's praying for all of you. And there, it, it is joy. It is joy. Dale Carnegie, you know, he's big on um, winning friends. He wanted a bunch of them. He said this, you can make more friends in two months by becoming interested in other people than you can in two years by trying to get other people interested in you. One of the ways to get people interested is to pray for them. Say to someone, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? You'd be amazed. And then come back a couple of weeks later and say, I actually prayed for you. <laughs> Christian circles, we use that I'll pray for you thing pretty frequently when we never pray for someone. But what I'm saying is pray for them. Come back and follow up and say, I've been praying for you for two weeks. How's it going? How, can we adjust the prayers? What? You'll be amazed how much that intimacy deepens with a friend through prayer. Goes on and says, it is right for me to feel like this way about all of you since I have you. And again, it's an intimate saying in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. We need to say we have people in our hearts. We need to hold people dearly in our hearts. Now, here's, here's a challenge for us. We don't live in an age where it's easy to expose our hearts. We live in an age where we mask our hearts. We mask our feelings because we want to look good. We want to look good when we come to the corporate gathering, right? We want to look a certain way. We want to act a certain way. We want people to think we've got it all together. You know, you don't have to do this, but you could just look to your left or right, and you will see a person who does not have it all together because none of us do. Now, the, the question is, who do we let into our hearts? Who do we expose our hearts to? How do we reveal our hearts? And I, again, I know there's a certain caution, but there's got to be a willingness to say, God, I want to share my heart with some people around me because I need some people to see who I am. Ann Mara Lindbergh said this, I am shedding my pride. But why? Because to let people into your hearts takes getting rid of pride. Pride stands in opposition to intimacy. I, I shall ask into my shell only those friends with whom I can be completely honest. I find I am shedding hypocrisy in human relationships. What a rest that will be. The most exhausting thing in life I've discovered is being insecure. Some of us should write that down. It is exhausting to be insecure. That is why so much of social life is, is exhausting. One is wearing a mask. I, I have shed my mask. We need to 
walk in deeper intimacy. I'm moving forward. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ. He's going on and on about this, isn't he? About the affection, the heart, the prayer that he's pouring out to people. And he goes to great lengths to, to talk about how these relationships deepen through, through intimacy. Because the church is about relationship. It's about one another. Moving forward, point three is this. Relationships are strengthened by partnership. We are co-laboring, co-laboring for the gospel in this place. This is a partnership. Hey, people, look at me again. This is a partnership. This is not a leader and a bunch of followers. This is about a partnership where we are all pulling together in the same direction. And Paul, Paul is an apostle. I mean, really, it's kind of pretty much what we would consider the top of the rung, right? Apostleship, an apostle with a capital A uh, kind of apostle. And he says to, to them this, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, your partnership, he's giving thanks. He's, he's celebrating God because they're partnering together. Again, this goes back and, and is to this message of us pulling together in the same direction, that we're working together. And if I'm right, the word partnership here is the word koinonia, fellowship. We are we're together in this, pulling together. We need partners. You can't go this alone. If you go this alone, you're, you're going to get picked off. If you try to do this alone, you'll isolate yourself. If you go this alone, it's, it's a dangerous place to be. Ethel Barrymore said this, the best time to make friends is before you need them. <laughs> you, these partnerships are developed in positions of health, not necessarily in positions of weakness. Sometimes when we're at our weakest, we need, we need people, but it's hard to develop those strong relationships then. They take time. They take effort. They take love. They take intimacy. But we can grow together. Fourth point is this. Relationships, relationships develop greater confidence. By confidence, I don't mean just individual confidence, but it does. I'm talking about confidence in the purposes and plans of what God is doing. Paul says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I mean, Paul is confident in their partnership and in their relationship, in their intimacy, that what God has started, he's going to complete. It, this kind of confidence, where is it rooted? Here's, it's not a trick question, but it is a little bit. See, if, if my confidence in Brian Shoup is rooted in who Brian Shoup is as a person then my confidence at some point is going to fail. And Brian is as strong a person as I know. But why can Paul say, I am confident in Brian's destiny. I am confident 
that the good work, who began? Christ began. That God began. Who's going to bring it to completion? Is Brian going to bring it to completion? No, God is going to bring He's going to bring it to completion. My confidence in you is an act of faith in God. People, this is really, really important. If your confidence in people is dependent on them as people, you will stumble and fall and become disillusioned. But if your confidence is in God, that even in the failure of them being a person and in their relationship, they're going to they're gonna disappoint you. I, I am going to disappoint you. As hard as that is for me to say, I, I, am, I have my limits as a person. I try to be vulnerable with you and tell you kind of in jest at times where, who I am and what I look like. But I can guarantee if you're one of my close friends, I'm still going to disappoint you. Why? Because in and of ourselves, we're all being developed into the image of Christ, which means I'm not there yet, and neither are you. And if I think that you have to look like Jesus right now, and you can make no mistakes, and if you do, you're a screw-up, and our relationship is done, then I will be on an island. Why? Because my relationship with you, my confidence that God is going to do this is in him and not you. Hey, this is good for marriage, too. Really. This is good for your marriage relationship to say, you know what? I love you, but my faith is in God. And my confidence that he's going to complete his work in you. Again, I'm throwing out all these premarital counseling statements that I use, but it's this. Change yourself, pray for your spouse. Why? Because prayer is the best opportunity you have to see another person change. You cannot change another person. Write that down somewhere. Write it down. Just write it down. Keep it close. You cannot change another person. So if you're dating someone or you're engaged to someone and you're thinking, I like like 89.5% of the things in this person's life, and when we get married, I'll fix the other 10 and a half. Oh, no, you won't. It won't happen. As a matter of fact, the more effort you put into trying to change them, the more you're going to focus on that 10.5%. It's going to bug the heck out of you. It's going to be the 89.5% that you liked. You won't even see it anymore. All you're going to see is this 10.5% that you're trying to change. And eventually, it will mess you up and your relationship. But if you step back and say, in gratitude, I received the 89.5. Better than I could ever hope for anyway. I'm going for the 89.5. Thank you, Lord. Bless. Let's grow in intimacy. Let's love one another. And I'm going to pray for the other 10 and a half because that's the only chance I stand of seeing them change. But be confident of this. In faith, God is working in their hearts and in their lives. And the more you pray for them, the more God is working. Hang in there. God is not like men. Men conduct experiments, but God carries out a plan. I love this statement. God never does anything by halves. He brings it to completion. 
Listen, this, this confidence, it's also rooted in grace. All of you sharing God's grace with me. It's by grace that we've been saved. It's the grace of God that we're changing. It's the confidence that we have with one another that we have grace working in one another. And because if we extend grace into these relationships, then we'll be offering forgiveness as well. There are no enduring relationships without forgiveness. None. At some point, somebody's going to mess up. And you're going to have the choice. Do I forgive? Do I walk in grace? Or do I back out? And if you want an enduring relationship, seeing the confidence of God go through and to another person, you have to walk in forgiveness. Try to show as much compassion as your father does. This is Luke. And we're going to be studying Luke starting in a couple of weeks. So start reading through Luke. Try to show as much compassion as your father does. Now, wait a minute. Have any of you really latched onto that phrase? How much compassion does God show? Whoa, wait a minute. Now we're in the impossible range. How can I show that much compassion? Never criticize or condemn or we'll come back on you. Go easy on others, then they will do the same for you. We need compassion, forgiveness, flowing through us. Listen, the only way you're going to do this is by God's grace at work within you, flowing out of you to touch the lives of, of others. What, what I hope you're catching here is this idea that I can't do this apart from God, but I'm called to do this. And as I do it more and more and see God work, he, he, my confidence in being a pastor and loving people and, and, and walking through has grown exponentially in almost 30 years. Why? Because I've seen God's grace. I've seen forgiveness. I mean, honestly, I could go around this room and uh, testify to where I've offended someone or they've offended me. And here we are together. I mean, in some ways, it's incredible. We're like a boomerang church. We send people out. Sometimes we send them out in good ways. Sometimes we send them out in bad and they come back. Why? Why? Because I think there's a relationship and a forgiveness and a grace and an understanding that God is at work. That matters in relationships. Relationships also, this is an obvious one I think, but they long for presence. I mean, you can't be in a relationship with somebody and not be present with them in some capacity. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. In order to, to, to be with someone, you got to get out of your own place. Winnie the Pooh, that great philosopher, he says this, you can't stay in your corner of the forest waiting for others to come to you. You have to go to them sometimes. I love that saying. You got to go to them. Get up. Get out of your house. Hey, if you're watching online, come on back. We'd love to have you. If, if it's safe and you don't have any pre-existing conditions, things are good here. People love you. Come on back. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Relationships long for presence. I'm trying to move fast here, but I, I hope you think this is good and you're really engaged in this truth. It's probably three sermons in one. So just think you're getting three weeks in one week, which is my usual style. George Barna did a survey, and he said this. He made this statement, the most, and asked people if it was true or false. 
The important thing in a relationship is not how much time you spend together, but the quality of time spent together. 90% of respondents said this is true. 90%. Now listen, I don't want to underestimate quality time, but as a father of five, I want to say this, quality time happens in the middle of some quantity time. I don't know when quality time is going to happen. I can't, I can't call it forth. You know, in Jesus' name, quality time now. You know, really, when, when those times when I want to get in my kids' lives and say, hey, what is God doing? Share with me what's going on. A lot of times it's like, oh, Dad, not now. Not at this moment. I don't really feel up to it. I just went on a drive with my daughter. I'll call it a drive. We drove to New Jersey. You know, it's a long way from here to New Jersey. It's like 15, 16 hours. We had some great conversations when she was awake. And um, <laughs> really, we had, some great we had some great conversations. But I couldn't call them out. You know what I mean? They happened in the middle of a 16-hour drive. Now, I wouldn't trade those two days with my daughter. I, I mean, I really... Driving to New Jersey is like painting my baseboards. It's like, you know, it's kind of like along those kind of lines. But I do because I love my daughter. And I'm like, when am I going to get to spend two days with her again? She's 24, almost 25. You know, it's, it's, it's at that point. When am I going to spend two days with her again where I just got to get to throw out my incredible pearls of wisdom to her about what life is all about? When do I get to hear from her about what God's done in her life in these past years in some way? Here's my point. Relationships long for presence. I long to be with the people of God. I long to be with my family. I love it the times we, we get together. I'm pretty selfish about them when it happens now because none of my kids live in the state of Alabama anymore. They're all spread out everywhere. God's achieving through them. All of that to say... We need to be present. If you're watching online, come on back. We long for your presence. Final point, and I did finally make it. The point six, relationships increase in love. Here's the love factor. I think that with everything else that goes on, that love is not an emotion. Love is the grace of God working in the presence of people, being confident with one another, forgiving one another, walking with one another, and when that happens, you can do like Paul. I pray that your love for each other will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in your knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until Christ returns. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, those good things that are produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. Hallelujah. That our love overflows for one another. Don't you want to be a part of a place where the people of God are just together and love is over? I mean, it's not like a loving tolerance kind of thing. No, you know, we go to church together, we got to love one another but that love just overflows? Because if so, then it's going to take you being grateful, willing to engage in intimacy with another person, letting them into your hearts, showing your heart 
partnership, co-laboring for the gospel, confidence, presence, love will overflow. I mean, what does, what, who needs community and relationships? That's the question. Who needs it? Who needs this community and relationships? And what does it take to build community? The answer to both is you. You need it, and it takes you in order to do it. In 1874, a young woman by the name of Frances Havergal, um, her father was an Anglican minister. She, um, she, she never married. She was in pretty poor health, but she was a talented musician, better known as a poet uh, for her time. She worked with the Christian Missionary Society, and she went to a meeting. She went to a meeting of 10 people in a cabin, and here's her words. Here's what she said about that meeting. She said, I went for a little visit of five days to a place called Arley House. There were 10 people in the house, some unconverted and long prayed for, some converted but not rejoicing Christians. So here's her meeting, right? 10 people, some are unconverted, though they've been prayed for. Some are converted, but they're not rejoicing Christians. He gave me the prayer, God. God gave me the prayer. Lord, give me all in this house. And he did. Before I left the house, everyone had got a blessing. Now listen, what she's implying is this. I asked God to use me in the, to bless the lives of these people. To work through me in relationship to touch those around me. The last night of my visit after I retired, the governess asked me to go to the two daughters. They were crying and both of, uh, they were crying. I prayed for them and both of them trusted and rejoiced. Trusted in what? Trusted in Jesus. It was nearly midnight. I was too happy to sleep and passed out for most of the night in praise and renewal of my own consecration and those little couples formed themselves. I don't know if you catch what I'm, the poetry and the language. She's like, I wanted to be a blessing. God used me to touch the lives. As a result, they rejoiced, they received, they were blessed, and I couldn't stop praising God. I was more consecrated when I finished than when I started. And those little couples formed themselves and chimed in my heart one after another till they had finished with this line, ever only all for thee. Now, those of you who know hymns know that she then that day wrote this hymn, take my life and let it be. Consecrated, Lord, for thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in endless praise. Now, please, here's what I want you to see. This hymn comes not out of just her looking at God, right? Her hymn, this hymn of take my life and let it be, is all about God use me to touch these 10 people and these two little girls and the lives of those around me. The final verse says this, take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. 
take myself and I will be ever, only, all for thee. Today, I want to pray that we would walk in the community. We need it. We need relationships. And the way it's going to happen is when we consecrate ourselves before the Lord and commit ourselves to the people around us. We're going to take an offering in just a second, and I, you're, you're free to give. I would love for you to. But as we do, we're going to sing this hymn of faith, Take My Life and Let It Be. You're going to bring your offering, your prayer request, whatever it might be. But I pray that when you come to the front and you do this prayer request of your guest, there's a little card in the seat back in front of you in mind. We'd love to have the opportunity to pray for you. Fill it out. But if you come to the front and drop this off, you're saying, not just, I'm, I'm giving you a little bit of money. I, you're saying, God, this little bit represents all of me. Take my life and let it be. Ever only all for thee. This Wednesday, you get a chance to come back. And, and we get to have our fullness Thanksgiving meal. We get to walk in gratitude together. So, yeah, we didn't have it last year. That's why we're celebrating. It's one of our favorite events of the year. Wednesday night, 6 p.m. downstairs. If you're new here, um, just bring a side dish. We furnish meat and just bring a side, and we'll have a great time of saying thanks to the Lord. After church this morning, uh, for all those who clapped, uh, if you wouldn't mind going downstairs and setting up tables and chairs, we would appreciate it. So if you're so happy we're doing it, help us uh, set up right after, right, after, right after church. Stand up with me. Lord, thank you for this people and this place. We are so grateful, Lord. You are a great God and greatly to be praised. I pray that we would walk in community together. That, Lord, our hearts would be turned toward you. Thank you for Paul's words to the Philippian church as he thanked them and their partnership in the gospel and the love he had, thanking you for every time he thought about him. Lord, I thank you for a church where we can walk in that kind of life and love together. Lord, help us to open up our hearts to one another and give ourselves away in grace and gratitude and life. Lord, right now, right here, in this place, we say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing this great hymn of faith.